two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I'm joined by the Honorable Tony Clement, former Canadian Member of Parliament and current tech entrepreneur and international advisor. Mr. Clement was an elected official from 1995 to 2019, first with the Ontario Legislature and then with the Canadian Legislature. And in both legislatures, he held prominent cabinet roles. One of those roles, him being the president of Canada's Treasury Board Secretariat, is the reason why he joins me today, because he was the architect behind Canada joining the Open Government Partnership back in April of 2012. And in just a few moments, he's going to tell us the backstory on how that all came to be. So, Mr. Clement, thank you so much for, for joining me and, and sharing us this story. For sure. It's great to be on your program. Thanks for inviting me. It's, oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Now, I think I'd like to start this conversation when the OGP launched in the September of 20, 2011. There were eight founding nations, none of which were Canada, but it wasn't long after that we joined. It was actually like six months later that we joined. So I'm wondering, were there any discussions back then about Canada, Canada being part of the initial cohort? Yeah, so uh, again, uh, this is important to get the, the, a little bit of the backstory and the, and the historical context. So up until uh, you know, October of 2011, I was Canada's industry minister. And uh, then we had the, uh, fed, uh, I guess the federal election was in May uh, of, uh, of 20, uh, 2011. So up until that point, I was the industry minister. Uh, then uh, with the cabinet shuffle and the new government, I was made president of the treasury board. So as industry minister, uh, one of the things, I mean, what a great portfolio to have because, you know, you're dealing with soup to nuts. You're dealing with the auto sector, the aerospace sector. Uh, the mining sector, uh, but also I, I was really interested in the tech sector. And, um, you know, I, I, I felt that I was a bit tech savvy in the cabinet and that I, I cared about tech issues. I saw how they were important for Canadian economic development more generally. So I developed uh, uh, sort of Canada's digital strategy, uh, which was then refined by uh, others uh, after I left that portfolio. Uh, so. You know, I was keen, and and one of the things that happened when I was transferred portfolios to Treasury was I was looking for ways uh, to still be engaged in the tech sector, uh, and uh, the one that presented the most opportunity, of course, was uh, OpenGov and and Open Data. So um, when I got briefed up, you know, you you get we got reelected in May, June, July, you're getting briefed, so. When I realized that we had this opportunity to uh, be part of a worldwide initiative on open government, uh, of course, uh, leapt at the opportunity and uh, was able to, uh, you know, sign the document, uh, be part of uh, uh, the OpenGov uh, conference that happened in Brasilia. 
uh, and, uh, you know, get us kind of moving quickly to catch up to some of the early movers. So that's kind of the backstory and the historical context. But it was something when the, when the bureaucracy realized I was keen on it and interested in it on it, of course, they get revved up about it as well. And uh, I think it was part of my mandate letter from Prime Minister Harper as well. So I had that, that cover uh, from Prime Minister Harper to, to move, ahead, move ahead with this. So I, I want to make sure I connected the dots because I'm not exactly the smartest person around. But basically, it sounds as though the only reason why we weren't part of that initial cohort was because of the election. There was sort I of more so. like logistical issues more than uh, political will. Yeah, I think I think we we were uh, you know heading towards an election. Everybody realized that in in the months before May, uh, and so yeah, things just slow down. The, yeah. That's what happens in in Ottawa. Things slow down when you're getting towards an election. So you mentioned Stephen Harper a moment ago, and I'm kind of curious, sort of like the chicken or the egg kind of question, which is how did the idea of joining the OGP happen? So like. You said that Stephen Harper may even have put it in your mandate letter, but is he the one that says, I think we should join the OGP or were you the one that brought it up to him? Or is there a, a third option that said, like, maybe it came from the bureaucracy. It's like, Mr. you know, Mr. Clement, maybe we should join the OGP. And tell us a little bit about those dynamics on how the idea came about. I wouldn't have heard about the OGP in any detail uh, prior to my ascension as a uh, Treasury Board President, so I would have been briefed by uh, the bureaucracy. I would have assigned uh, a policy staffer in my office to that, uh, and uh, and then uh, we would have gone. The, the, I would be the initiator, and we would go then to cabinet, the cabinet committee, uh, and say, "Okay, we we, we are, are intending to join the OGP. Here are some of our responsibilities here." Here's how I want to develop the strategy. Once you join, what are you going to do about it? What, what, uh, how are you going to implement it? Uh, what are going to be the things that uh, Canada is going to be known for? And so uh, those would be my initiative. I'd get cabinet approval, and then I'd, uh, then I'd implement after that. So when the bureaucracy first approached you about this idea of joining the OGP, what was your initial reaction? Was it like, I'm going to be guarded on this. Like, give me some more information, or were you just immediately on board because you were saying a moment ago that you wanted to stay sort of, you know, relevant in terms of some of your responsibilities. So, can you tell us a little bit about your initial reactions to being presented with this opportunity? Sure, I was very enthusiastic. Again, I I was uh, missing the tech sector after I got moved from Industry Canada, and uh, so this was a way to be continue to be engaged. I find. I found uh, that in my engagements with the tech sector, I really liked working with uh, tech entrepreneurs. I thought they were a really cool bunch of people in Canada, very innovative, uh, really interesting ideas about government generally uh, and about society. So I wanted to find ways to get to continue to be engaged just as I'd been engaged with the digital strategy that I came up with. So um all of that is to say, uh, once I became aware of this opportunity, I kept, I leap, uh, leaped at the chance of, of be, putting it front and center as one of the things I wanted to be known for as Treasury Board President. And that's evidenced by how quickly we jumped right into sort of the membership itself following the election and literally six months after the announcement to the OGP. And I'm kind of wondering at the same time, 
And in a way, I think I know the answer, but early on, who were some of the people that helped you champion the idea of Canada, Canada joining the OGP? And I mean, both like your, your political colleagues on all sides of the House of Commons and in, in front of the bureaucracy. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly uh, from my perspective, uh, I had a good support from uh, James Moore, uh, who was a tech-savvy minister. Uh, he was a minister of Canadian heritage. Then, then he became industry minister, too. Uh, after uh, I think uh, Christian Paradis was after me, but then then James uh, went in there. So James was there uh, and was always one of my allies on on tech issues. Uh, and uh, I had some really good staff. Like one of my uh, uh, originally Eric Waddell in my minister's office. I, I, he he attended the Brazilian. Uh, conference with me, and I've got a funny anecdote about Eric and I. Uh, I could share later while we were down in Brazil. Uh, and uh, and uh, the um, the next guy uh, was a guy named Brian Smith, who I hired right out of business school. I think he went to uh, uh, he went to uh, uh, Wilfrid Laurier Business School. Hired him, and he became so savvy on this stuff. He eventually left my staff and, and started his own company, which is called Think Data. So he's in the big data world because that was the the side of it, uh, the open data side of it that I was really championing. So uh, all of that was was helpful. I also had a, uh, I don't know if you recall, but I actually had an advisory group of tech people and uh, you know professors uh, who cared about uh, open government. Uh, to advise me on how to implement uh, the open government policy. I think that was one of the requirements, actually, uh, of assigning the OpenGov international document was to have this feedback mechanism and to uh, have uh, key performance indicators that uh, would be assessed, not by ourselves, so, you know, so that we're not just uh, you know, uh, patting ourselves on the back, but being assessed by outsiders who would say whether we're meeting the targets or not. We're 10 years in, and we're still having to develop sales pitches and elevator pitches about why it's important for open government and all that. What was your sales pitch back then to say, like, joining the OGP is a good idea? So, uh, so here's the thing. <laughs> there, were, there were aspects of this that were easier to sell and aspects of this that I knew I was going to get, um, shall we say systemic resistance. So when you, you know, when you're dealing with open gov, uh, you know, I quickly pivoted to open data. Mm. Okay. Which is a subset of open gov because open gov also deals with, uh, you know, changing your access to information laws. Right. And Canada did have need to modernize its ATI legislation, uh, but that was a hard, hard sell. Uh, not uh, you'd think it's because well, you know Harper and he doesn't like to share. I know that, but this was actually ingrained bureaucratic resistance. Bureaucrats don't like access to information uh, a lot of the time, uh, and they're the ones who gum up the works and make the you know elongate. Uh, the tale on how long it takes to respond to ATIs and it becomes a uh, just a, a cluster, you know what, 
for, for, you know, media who are accessing information and so on. And then you've got the information commissioner who's, who's always complaining and uh, it's just a mess. So uh, I could, you know, I could spend all of my time fighting and dying on the hill of a tip and uh, how we, how we deal with that. Or I could go down another route and make huge progress on open data. So that's what I decided to do. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those obstacles? It sounds as though, once again, open government in general and open data in particular was an easy sell. But what was the other difficulties you had in officially signing that on that line that were members of the OGP? So uh, basically, before I could sign on that line to be part of OGP, uh, uh, you know, I had to I had to present to my cabinet colleagues the plan of how we were going to implement it. And so my plan was top heavy with open data. Uh, and it did have some uh, access to information stuff, some, some easy uh, things that we could do uh, to, uh, to eradicate some of the most egregious aspects of ATI. Uh, but, and, most, and that was non-legislative. Uh, but I didn't, uh, I, I think that there was a 10-year review, or not 10-year, but five-year review of ATI that soon got mired in the system because it was never a priority when you're uh, trying to, uh, you know, continue to deal with the post-financial uh, crisis economic situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I, I, the only way I can say it is in politics as in life, you got to decide which hills you're going to fight on. And so uh, you only have limited time in government. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, uh, for me, it was like, do I tilt at that windmill or do I make real progress on the other one? And, and we were criticized for not doing more on ATI. I get that. Uh, you know, and uh, it was never enough that, that we got 300,000 data sets online, which had never been done before. Um, but that was where I could make progress. I don't feel as though you need to name names, but was there resistance even within some of the bureaucracy? Was there people that just say, for example, did not believe in joining the OGP altogether? No, I'd, I'd have to say that that is not the case. No one, no one advised me against joining the OGP. And I think that's partially because all of our major allies were members of the OGP. So, you know, you had the US there, uh, you had the UK there, UK was playing a leadership role. Uh, They were inviting us on to the OGP steering committee. Uh, So that was a little bit of a plum. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so, no, it wasn't a question of join or not join. The question was, in what context do we join? What are the markers uh, and the KPIs that we're going to create uh, that is going to measure progress? Because the, the one thing that I had to assure on is we, we were not going to be in a situation where we were going to join and then be condemned because we didn't meet uh, the high expectations of the information community upon joining. So did you, was there a time within that process that you knew you were on solid ground finally, that you finally had traction, like all the stars lined up. Like, do you remember that moment in your head? Like what was the final sort of domino falling into place? You know, uh, 
it wasn't that dramatic. I, I got to be honest with you. Uh, you know, I was briefed up. I, you know, I expressed enthusiasm for the concept of joining OGP. I created a, an MC, a memorandum to cabinet, as we call it. Uh, got my got my uh, colleagues on side, uh, and then uh, you know created this advisory committee of uh, you know I think there's a couple there was a University of Ottawa professor and there was a couple of tech uh, guys and gals and so on, and uh, uh, and then um, yeah we we uh, went to Brazil. And uh, signed on the dotted line, and uh, we had a three day. It was in Brasilia. I don't know if you've ever been to Brasilia, but it is a, uh, a capital city created by bureaucrats, like actually architecturally created. Uh, and it, it's to me, it's abysmal. Uh, and <laughs> so we were we were sort of there in the conference hall for a couple of days, and then I had a third day plan for meetings in uh, Sao Paulo, which all caved in at the last minute, every single meeting was postponed or canceled. And, you know, so I had a day to myself, which I could have spent in Brasilia, which would have been like a fate worse than death. <laughs> so uh, the, uh, the uh, consul general in uh, Rio was a friend of mine because I knew him through the, the G8. And uh, he said, uh, well, you know, we can set, we can do, do a tour of Rio. What would you like to do? And I said, you know what? Um, I'm in Brazil. I don't know the next time I'm going to be in Brazil. I'm going to fly to Manaus oh. and hire a guide and tour the Amazon for a day. And he said, okay, sure. You know, it's on my dime, by the way. Not yeah, the yeah. Uh, so then I go to my, my staffer, Eric Waddell, and I say, okay, here's the deal. I, you know, I'm not going to Rio. I'm not staying in Brasilia. I'm going to fly to Manaus. You're welcome to come. Uh, it'll cost you 400 bucks of your own money. We're going to stay in a hotel. Then we've, we've hired, you know, uh, Carlos, the, the epic guide of the Amazon. He's been hired, and Carlos is going to take us around the Amazon for a day. Are you in or are you out? I need to know now. And he had this, like, look of terror on his face. And he, he, he had, I could see the wheels in his mind turning, and he finally said, oh, okay, I'm coming, but don't tell my wife. <laughs> And now the cat's out of the bag. Exactly. So we had a, a just a, an amazing time touring the Amazon. And of course, I haven't been back since. So I think that was the, the right call. I'll take those opportunities when you have them, definitely. Exactly. exactly. Um, I'd like to, to, to get back on track a little bit. Sure. And now that you, know, there, you have traction when, in terms of joining the Open Government Partnership, you have a bit of a strategy on, on how you want to join. Now you need to start putting together these commitments, these initial commitments. And, and that's where a lot of the things can get really messy. Like everyone agrees on the destination, but don't, no one necessarily always agrees on how to get to that destination. So I want you to talk a little bit about, like, for example, like developing some of the commitments. Uh, some of the ones that were announced were like launching a virtual library, adopting the open government license, uh, developing a consolidated web presence, which is now called the Web Experience Toolkit, which I'm a personal fan of. At least I like the idea of doing it open source. I'm curious to know, like, what was that process of creating those initial commitments? Because I'm, I'm assuming that choosing priorities in the, in the government is not an easy process. And 
what makes it on the final document. You know, there's probably a lot of things that were cut in the editing room. There's probably things that were said, it's a great idea, but not at this time. Like, can you talk a little bit about that process on choosing those initial commitments? So, yes. So I, I, a lot of that was uh, based on a two, two pronged approach. One was consulting outside uh, with this uh, advisory group. Uh, and the other was obviously uh, generated uh, by the bureaucracy. And then my job was to challenge those ideas and to try to expand them where we could expand them, make sure they weren't too timid. Because uh, I think that the, uh, my experience in government has been when you have KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, they tend to go to the lowest bar so that they, they're assured of meeting them. Uh, rather than uh, doing something which uh, might be riskier in terms of a potential success. So that, that was my role as the challenge function. And uh, so we came up with uh, you know, what I thought was a, a decent set of initial um, ideas and, and, uh, and uh, goals and targets. And, uh, you know, this was something as well that we wanted buy-in. I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, buy-in from the public too, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I was so excited about open data because I could see that academics would be interested in this. Uh, 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 business people, entrepreneurs getting access to this data. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, generally, and, and fellow politicians, fellow MPs, when you've got the, the data from Treasury Board on the public accounts being available for the first time online, uh, that enhances accountability within government. So I saw all these different sort of subgroups of society who would have an interest in open data. And I was very interested in, um, you know, getting, getting them to sign on to the excitement of it, you know, and see the potential. And uh, one of the things that I did that was different uh, was with a, uh, I partnered with a guy named Ray Sharma. Mm. And Ray Sharma is a tech entrepreneur extraordinaire. Uh, he, uh, and he started uh, his, his own hackathon to come up with uh, uh, ideas for his own company uh, that would, uh, would help him uh, come up with new uh, video games uh, for, because he, he, he was, uh, he created, sort of mobile device video games for a while. So he invited me to be a judge uh, for his hackathons. And I, you know, I was there with Gil Moore, who's a, you know, a former, uh, well, he, he, he owns Metalworks, which is the premier uh, music studio in Canada, you know, Justin Bieber, David Bowie, that kind of thing. Uh, so he was a, he was a judge and there's a couple other people that Robert Herjavec, I think the Dragon's Den guy, was a judge. So I got really excited about this, these hackathons. And so Ray and I decided that one of the ways we were going to generate ideas and excitement from open data was to create our own hackathon, which eventually was called Code. And uh, Code was to, uh, to get all these like 17-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 21-year-olds, uh, you know, for a period of 24 hours to use our open data and to come up with useful apps uh, using Canadian government open data. And it became the largest hackathon in Canada for a, for a time. 
literally thousands of, of young people uh, participated in it from coast to coast to coast. Uh, and, uh, and then we gave out prizes. And then part of what we did was that the most promising apps, uh, the creators of those apps, we would introduce them to uh, uh, angel investors and tech entrepreneurs who might want to invest in them. And so we were putting together all these young people with, with their first, you know, that, that all of a sudden they could do a startup because they had some angel investments. So I, this was so exciting. Nobody had ever done that before. I faced some resistance on that for a while, but uh, I kind of rolled through that. And I, I just, uh, I just saw it as so exciting that a government was getting these, you know, 18 year olds interested in Canadian uh, open data, open data sets. So anyway, that's a, maybe a long story, but it's an exciting story for me. Actually, it's, it, it's interesting because you mentioned you had a bit of resistance around code, which stands for or stood for the Canadian open data experience. And I remember I've never actually gotten confirmation on this. It's back then. This was 20, I'm going to say 2012, 2013. Yeah. Roughly. 13. Yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I remember there was nowhere in the language for the promotion or even on the website of the word hackathon or hack. Yeah. And we in the community thought the reason why that is, is because there's so little literacy around data and technology that people would think the general public would think that it meant like hacking the government, like a hacker would break into a bank or something along those lines. And that it was a, a deliberate decision politically to not use that word because it might sort of scare off the general public a little bit that the government would be involved in something like this. Can, can you confirm or disconfirm this speculation? I, I would say that I would be able to confirm that. So I think we called it an apathon or something. Oh, apathon. That's right. That was the language that you guys had used. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was the resistance coming mostly from the, the bureaucracy, from the cabinet, from some of the other colleagues on Parliament Hill? Like what was the, the resistance behind that? No, I think it was mostly bureaucratic because it was a new concept, never been done before. So people are rightly afraid of, of failure or something going wrong uh, if it hasn't been tried before. So it was an innovation. And as we know in government sometimes and in any other large organizations, sometimes innovation is not always uh, looked upon brightly. The idea of sort of failing forward yeah. is one, especially if you're a tech entrepreneur, you completely understand that premise of the government is not necessarily allowed in the eyes of the public or the media or even politicians to fail forward because it looks like a waste of money and things like that. But it's slowly, I think we're coming around a little bit. I think that's an interesting, an interesting point. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if you look at some of the great, great leaders in, in history, uh, they, they were um, uh, at least uh, tolerant of certain failure and not all failures, but uh, I'm just reading a book on the U.S. Civil War and uh, there were lots of failures on the Union side of the army uh, until ultimate victory. But uh, Lincoln was a very patient wet man. And when he when he had confidence in you, he, he could let you fail and, and continue on with the, the ultimate goals. So that's what you want to see in government. Uh, and, uh, you know, we got to learn from our failures. Uh, you know, I, I think of the, the Phoenix as an example of uh, how bad things can get uh, if people just keep, 
you know, keep digging the hole rather than getting out of the hole early. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, you've got to have innovation in government. Everybody was talking about it 10 years ago. We've got to innovate government. We've got to make government, uh, you know, for public servants, like, you know, guy, you know, these are guys and gals that, you know, they, they want to be connected. The connectivity is what they were, you know, if you're a young public servant, that's what you're used to. And then you go to work and then you disconnect and you don't, you're not using your applications because they're not GOC approved. Uh, and all of a sudden you're cut off from the world. I mean, that made, made, it made no sense to me. Uh, so we were always encouraging people to, to, you know, to be part of the electronic, you know, world, the digital world, if you will, and uh, to use those innovations uh, in government. There is another related question. It's not so much about the, the, the creation or how we got into the OGP, but it's something that I know that the community of open data advocates such as myself, and it sounds as though you as well, especially now that you're a tech entrepreneur, one of the most requested open data sets in Canada to help fuel the economy is postal code data, which even through two different administrations yeah. has yet to be released as open data, while many different jurisdictions around the world have released that, their equivalent as open data. We obviously, once again, within the community, have our own suspicions as to why it hasn't been done. But I'd like to hear it from you as well, if you're able to shed a little bit of light on why postal code data has yet to be released as open data. A simple question, simple answer. It's Canada Post. Mm -hmm. They they refuse to cooperate. Uh, they see it as valuable information that they want to control. So they keep saying no. That's what the community believes. It's like they don't yeah. want to lose one of the main sort of revenue generator for themselves. Is there no tools that either the government can have within Parliament? to i know i mean it is a crown corporation you would think that there would be some authority that parliament hill or even the prime minister's office would have on a crown corporation yeah well i mean i guess they could legislate it or uh, yeah okay uh, you know I, I i they're they're not a law unto themselves they have they still have to report to the shareholder and the shareholder is the government of canada uh, but uh, yeah no they were completely resistant uh, you know they would be fighting fighting us on the beaches uh, <laughs> uh they were not gonna give with us the church alike <laughs> exactly exactly so, yeah, so not, my, no postal codes you know so uh, they were they were not going to give those up for sure yeah and and many of us remember the the lawsuit that they put on uh, i think it was geocoder and um right. obviously that was resolved in the end but what you're saying is if if the government of Canada, and by that I mean the, the, the political uh, side of the government of Canada, were to introduce, introduce legislation, uh, it could, I'm not going to say coerce, it's not the, the right term, but it could force the release of open data sets as opposed to just a general directive, say, coming from TBS. Right, right, exactly. You know, and I mean, uh, that was a rare case uh, and an important case. But generally, uh, we were doing open open data by default, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that too. Yeah, and actually, I'm actually, I'm glad that you brought it up because the next question I had on my list relates to that. And again, it's uh, this one is a more personal question than it is uh, sort of a community question. But 
back in October 2014, I got wind of the fact that, that the TBS, the Treasury Board, had issued an open data directive. It was on the website. It was for all public servants. It was the open by default directive. But there, and I wrote a blog post about it because I was disappointed somewhat that there was no announcement. There was not a press release. There was no big fanfare like Canada is open by default. It, it was sort of it almost like this giant milestone was almost like an afterthought. Right. I was very disappointed in that personally uh, because I really believed in, and obviously in the movement, I still do to this day. But this was something that the government should be proud of and, you know, shot it on the, into the rafters. Can you explain why there was not that fanfare that I think many of us in the community expected? Yeah, uh, good question. I, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, just priorities of government. Uh, you know, not every priority of a minister is a communications priority for the government. So, I um, mean, you know, I, I could get approval to do this thing, but it didn't mean that I had approval to communicate this thing. Okay. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of orphaned uh, ideas that get implemented, but don't see the light of day when it comes to the overall communication strategy of government. And part of it by then was government. The government was getting risk averse and they knew any time I did something as Treasury Board saying we're we're open by default, we'd get a cascade of criticism from media and from uh, commentators. Well, you say you're open by default, but look what happened here, you know, et cetera. Uh, you know, so it, it, it would not be a, a clear, clean communications win by amplifying my announcement of open by default. It would be at best a draw and probably a, a loss. As you know, the usual suspects pile on my my rapidly decomposing political corpse, and uh, you know, and say, you know, oh yeah, Clement says this, but look look how they treated the privacy legislation, or look how they did this, or look how look what the information commissioner is saying about them, blah blah blah. So there was just no there was no win for the government in in communicating it. So, so let me ask you a question. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question a little bit because, and I, I've actively tried to avoid at, turning this into a political conversation, right versus left, and, and that kind of in, in the middle. But obviously, people are because I, I do a lot of speaking engagements and I do a lot of training and and I go into schools and I talk about open government. And one of the things I like to say about open government and open data is that typically it's politically agnostic. Right. It is a tool, much like social media is a tool. It's, it's not a it can be used for political ends, but the tool itself is agnostic to political uh, to a political agenda. And I tell people like, by the way, it was actually a conservative government that got us into the open government partnership just to prove the point. But at that time, there were obviously um, it was a new thing. It was a new thing. Um, people weren't too sure about it. And some of the language that started coming out was this idea of open washing much like what greenwashing was happening in the mid 2000s. And I think somewhat it, it's, it's changing a little bit, but were there, and I don't know how to say this politely and I do apologize because I'm still learning my interviewing skills because you're seems like a very nice person, but were there any sort of, to, for the lack of a better term, like open washing strategies that were being implemented, say for example, like the open by default, 
it's not a, a public relations exercise like you just shown a moment ago, but were there fears that it could be viewed as an open washing exercise? I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm asking the question directly. I, I didn't draft it, so I do apologize, but please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have to say no. Um, I was not aware of any of that. If, if, if what you mean is uh, pursuing a policy uh, to portray a government in a certain way when the exact opposite was true. I, I don't think that, you know, I'm sure no government views themselves that cynically. I could be wrong, uh, maybe in other countries perhaps, but certainly not in Canada. So, so, you know, if you were a conservative in the Harper government at the time, uh, and we were being criticized for lack of transparency, um, most people in government thought that that simply wasn't true. It wasn't like, oh yeah, they found us out. Let's uh, let's create, let's construct a lie so that they don't, you know, so they don't see this happening in the corner here. Uh, no, no, I, I would say, and, and you know, uh, guess what? Every government is accused of lack of transparency. Uh, uh, again, I hope this is acceptable for your show, but Mr. Trudeau wrote in on a wave in 2015 of we're going to be more transparent. We're going to be more open. We're going to be more open gov. These guys did nothing. We're going to do it all. Uh, and they wrote in on that. And it was very powerful for many groups when they heard that. And then, you know, within months, they were being criticized of being just like Stephen Harper. So, and I don't blame them for that. I, I think that's, you just, you just read, read Tony Blair's biography, autobiography, his memoir of life and office. And uh, I'm not saying this is the right thing, but it, this is, this is how a politician reacts after a while. He said the worst thing he ever did was freedom of information. Oh, wow. He, he said that he said that in his, in his memoir. And I was obviously struck by that because what it did was it meant that important discussions that were happening in government couldn't happen because everybody was afraid of an FOI request. So, you know, that was Tony, that was Tony Blair, who was a labor prime minister in the UK. I'm not saying that's, I, I mean, I, there has to be information. It's, it's the people's information. It's not government's information. I get that. But I'm just telling you, after a few years in government, you become very jaundiced about this. Very, very much so. You become very apprehensive about it because, uh, you know, it, you're, you're having secret discussions before you make a decision. That's usually called advice to cabinet. Uh, and, and Trudeau had this problem, obviously, with the uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, SNC-Lavalin uh, controversy. So anyway, we, Harper was no different. He was no better. He was no worse. And so this is why I had to, you know, if I was, was going to get into the, uh, the uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, the pit of Sarnak, <laughs> on you know on access to information or freedom of information whatever you want to call it i would never get out of it mm -hmm. it would just be an endless discussion and debate and nothing would get done so my focus was okay you know that debate's going to happen it's going to happen to the ends of time i got to accomplish something that is different from that uh to accomplish something which is what every minister wants to do 
wants to leave a legacy of something important that helps Canadians. Uh, so that's why I really focused on the open data. Oh, and, and I think from a, a marketing perspective, it was definitely probably the, the right approach for the Canadian government at the time. And, and I like how the conversation is switching. Personally, while I am an open data advocate on many fronts, and like I said, I teach it and whatnot, um, I'm particularly fascinated with the switch towards collaboration and creating the trust between government, the bureaucracy, and, and the public, as well as the private sector and, and the third sector and whatnot. So sure. it's, it's, it's maturing before our eyes. And I guess in a way, that's sort of going to be my last question for you on the subject, which is when you first started learning about the open government partnership and open government in general, like as you've watched and been so close to open government for so long, what's sort of been your reaction to its maturity over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been lumpy. You know, uh, I think there's some wins there and some things that are surprisingly slow in terms of taking hold. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I would have thought that we would have made more progress on data sets and uh, resolving this postal code issue, that kind of thing, as, as we were talking about earlier. On the other hand, I happen to be one of my tech businesses is a is a uh, international procurement platform, um, electronic in nature called DG Market. And uh, which was a, a spinoff of the World Bank, actually, uh, but relies on open data sets of uh, procurement opportunities around the world. So if if open data hadn't happened, my that business wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right. We'd still be kind of waiting for government to publish individual procurement opportunities. And there happen to be 50 million businesses around the world that uh, bid on on government procurement so it's a it's a large large industry so that's just one example my my former uh staffer brian smith who's got his company think data uh you know same deal that that company is 40 employees uh, it's got uh, an office building in toronto and none of that uh would have happened if we hadn't have done open data so i think that there's such huge opportunities still out there uh, and i think you're right it's commingling government data sets with uh, uh, private sector uh data and uh, ideas that is still uh, the holy grail a little bit but i i think we are making progress on that so i think that's about all the time that i have at, at this time with you uh, but before I close the episode, uh, I like to give my guests the opportunity to have carte blanche. Is there anything that, that you'd like to mention that we haven't gone over? Or do you have any questions for me even? Yeah, I, I guess my question to you is, so you're finding that there's still a lot of interest in open government and uh, there's, the, the community is a still a vi vibrant community. Is that, is that correct? Definitely. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting that it's, I'm not going to say it's shifted, but it has the, the language I like to use is that it has matured. So there's a much wider interest in civic technology and civic tech. You mentioned DG market, for example, it's not language that we would have necessarily seen in, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, libraries are getting involved. Uh, the educational systems are getting involved. It's nice to see that growth. But personally, I think that we as a community, and this is one of the reasons why I created stories from the open gov and reopen gov is that I don't think we do a very good job of talking about it. It's usually, the, the language I like to use is that to hammer everything's a nail. 
And a lot of the people around open government, open data are policy wonks. They, they're, they're researchers, they're academics, and they write and they talk like that. And for the general public, that's not how they absorb content. So we need to find much more efficient ways. The, my big thing is I look at it from a marketing perspective. Our competition for time is reruns of The Bachelor, right? If we want people to be more active with their government, we can't look at it in the context of it's the right thing to do. We got to look at it from it's a better thing to do than watching reruns of The Bachelor, right? right? We got to frame it that way because that's essentially our competition for eyeballs. But Mm. I don't think personally, I don't think it has really, we haven't been efficient in talking about open government, open data. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you have this show then. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And lastly, um, you too have your own podcast and there's you yes. a few of the projects and you're part of some of the radio shows up north. Can you talk a little bit about some of your work that you're doing right now? Yeah. So I have my business work, of course, which is uh, focused in the tech sector or international consulting. Uh, but I also have my media empire, as I call it. You've got your media empire. I've got my media empire. Uh, which includes a rock and roll show uh, on Hunters Bay Radio in Muskoka, 88.7 FM. And then I've got my podcast with a gentleman by the name of Jody Jenkins called And Another Thing Podcast. We have 18 episodes. We cover political topics, social trends, and pop culture. So our our remit is very wide, uh, allowing us to talk about whatever we want to talk about, basically. We have some great guests in. We just had Michael Corrin in talking about his transformation of faith and uh, Warren Kinsella has been on the program. Uh, uh, Rob Benzie talking about Ontario politics, uh, Steve Pakin. So we've had some great, great guests. And uh, then I have, there's a new uh, format for news called the news forum. And I have a business show on that business economics and tech actually it's called boom and bust. Uh, and uh, that is uh, found uh, digitally at the newsforum.ca, uh, but will soon be on Bell and Rogers. So yeah, that uh, you know, Russ never sleeps, baby. You got to keep uh, getting out there and uh, talking about uh, and talking with the media, and that's what I'm doing. It's funny. There, an old boss of mine used to have this saying, which is, "If you want anything to get done, give it to a busy person." Well, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you dearly for, for taking part in this interview. And to be honest with you, to, to be so candid with your answers, um, because uh, a lot of the times in the community, we don't get to hear those types of answers, like Canada Post, for example. Um, and I want to thank our audience for listening. And please leave a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better. Or if there's any other guests or stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.